Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number 11 of The Narrative. I'm your host, Jeff Gallett. I'm so grateful that you found the podcast. If this is your first listen, I encourage you to follow the podcast and would appreciate it if you could write and post a quick review. I find storytelling interesting, and I find the storytellers themselves fascinating. So the idea behind this podcast is to meet people who are great storytellers and to get to know them. Gail Filter is joining me for this episode. Gail is a street photographer and photojournalist that I met a couple of months ago in a very random way. Gail is telling the story, visually, of homeless men and women living on the streets of Sacramento. We had a brief conversation one morning after we met at a coffee shop, and from that I learned a little about Gail, his work, his background, his activism, and his advocacy. In this episode, we'll learn much more. Gail began his photographic storytelling after retiring from a long career as an environmental prosecutor, and he also served the state of California as an appointed government official. He's a graduate of the University of San Diego School of Law. For Gail, photography is a powerful means to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves, and a catalyst for altering public perception by evidencing social and environmental conditions. We have a wide-ranging discussion about the environment, economy, COVID-19, and about how homelessness is a result of all of these and other factors. I think you'll find Gail as fascinating as I do. So Gail, welcome to the Narrative Podcast. Appreciate you being here with me. It's good to be with you, Joe. I uh, I guess you're out there. Uh, you're in Sacramento, so you're. Uh, I think you started to tell me offline, but um, you've got the uh, fires going on all around you, right? Heat waves, fires, drought. Um, just got. They might. They might actually shut down the main road to Lake Tahoe. It's getting close. There's a lot of. You know the. We've been fortunate in Sacramento, but the area surrounding Sacramento is unbelievable for the air quality. Some, it, I think in some places near Tahoe, the AQI exceeded 500, and they stopped measuring after 500. 300's hazardous. So that's really, really bad stuff. So I want to... Um... I'm going to introduce you here in a second um, and talk about how we met in our brief our brief meeting that we had that led to this. But I do know that before, just pivoting off of what you just said, um, you're retired. You're an environmental lawyer. Is that correct? I was an environmental prosecutor. Okay. So a lot of my work, um, especially in the latter part of my career, was with uh, white collar environmental prosecutions and worker safety violations. So for the people who are listening, um, just some background on it. My wife and I were in Sacramento a couple of months ago visiting her family. And uh, her brother is an artist. And her brother, um, the last time we were in Sacramento a few years ago, had done a show at Old Soul Coffee Shop. So we knew of Old Soul. So we got up in the morning and said, hey, let's go to Old Soul and get breakfast and get some coffee. And we're sitting at Old Soul, and this guy walks by us wearing a T-shirt that says Good Trouble on it, carrying a camera. And we live in Georgia. We looked over and said, hey, Good Trouble, John Lewis. And you walked over, and we had a very brief conversation, very brief. And you uh, told us 
that you're a photographer and you pointed us to your Instagram page and we kind of said our goodbyes and went back to our breakfast and we followed you on Instagram. And uh, I've got to tell you, I've just been completely blown away over the couple of months at seeing the work that you do, um, which prompted me to want you to be here because the point of this podcast is to meet people who are storytellers and find out why they're such good storytellers. And this one's a little different because you're a very obviously visual storyteller, but your work is remarkable. And I just want to explore how you got there, especially from a beginning in working as a prosecutor into this work that you're doing. And I want you to explain to my listeners what the work is. Well, I, it would be remiss of me if I did not say that prior to becoming a prosecutor, I taught for a junior college in maximum security prisons for 10 years. So the point being is in order to survive in a maximum security prison, you better be a darn good storyteller. Um, and the reason is, is that it's just, it's just not the educational values that you're um, transferring to your students, but also it's a primary form of entertainment in, in, in the prison system. So at the, the ripe old age of 39, I decided that I was going to go to law school. And after I got out of law school, I was offered a position to become a prosecutor, which seems kind of, you know, contradiction for someone who taught college classes in, um, in, in criminology and in government to flip over to the prosecution side. But if you really stop to think about it, the, the, the prosecutor's duty is to do justice. And especially in these times, the justice, as we're all aware of throughout the country, is primarily focused on those that are above the law and, and the violations that may occur. But also, it seems to me a large part of that is that justice entails not only that those who are who consider themselves above the law, but also those who are beneath the protection of the law. So that's always been my my interest is the the ones who don't get a fair shake. And um, in, in my, and the reason I say this is my my education served me well. My experiences an educator served me well because it easily transferred to telling stories in jury trials. And a number of judges and jury foremen who told me, says, you know, you're just really good at getting a story out of evidence. And that's really what a prosecutor does is look at the evidence and try to assemble what the story is that's found in that evidence. So I think those skills serve me well. Um, and I continued to, when I was a prosecutor, I continued to teach um, other lawyers, environmental prosecutors. And then for 10 years, I worked for the District Attorneys Association and was a lobbyist. And um, if there's anything that tests your skills, it is a lobbyist who's get assigned two minutes to present a story to um, a legislative committee. Just unbelievable. To, to, and you realize there's going to be at least 15 or 20 other stories during that hearing. And what is it that you're going to do that make your story unique? It's really interesting. I'm a, you know, I'm a career marketer 
And, you know, my job largely was to create stories, business stories, and then equip salespeople to then go out and sell those stories to prospective customers. And as you're describing it, it's not all that different. It's really not different that the lobbyist in the role of the salesperson armed with whatever materials they have that who behind the scenes has equipped them with the story to tell and the, the legislator at the other end trying to determine what's in it for them to buy or sell. Yeah, yeah. Except when you're doing a criminal trial, then the good, the, the good 12 people have to all agree that the story is a good one, which is, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a different thing. You have to really start thinking about what you're really, really going to convey in the amount of time that you have. I remember, um, you know, if it, if it helps at all, I remember this judge who was kind of my mentor, and he used to, he was a bald-headed guy, and he used to put his hands on top of his head after a trial. He says, Gail, what, you know, what were you thinking? I mean, why would you ever spend more than an hour examining or cross-examining the witness? You're just, you're just killing your, your jury. Why would you ever spend more than an hour doing a closing argument? And the more I, the more I went on, the more I began to understand that he was right because the attention span we have of, of people who uh, you know, we're trying to, to, to tell a story to, it isn't going to last very long. You know, I mean, you, you're lucky if you've got 10 minutes yeah. to get a message across. And more likely, it's going to be two or three minutes. Yeah, I served on one jury. I've, I've only ever been chosen actually to, to serve on an actual jury once. And it was 15 years ago, and it was a week-long trial. And, you know, I try to be a good listener. I'm not great at it. And I think other people probably struggle as well. And I could see it then. And that was really before the real onset of things like social media, because we got into deliberations and there were people who you could just tell by their position on the case, their mind had been decided in the first 15 minutes or the first 20 minutes and the other three and a half days had gone right past them. They, they, they came to a conclusion based on the first things they heard that seemed to make sense. And then we had to go through the deliberation process. And those of us, I was one of them who had listened to other things. We had to go back and resurface and go, well, what about this? And what about that? And it's gotta be a challenging thing to, to, especially, and you know, the, it's not like a sales situation. The, the stakes are much higher than that, obviously. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I think the other thing is, is that, you mentioned social media, and it, it seems to me that what I was doing 15 or 20 years ago in presenting trials to juries or um, bringing a story to the legislature, so much has changed through social media. You know, it's actually judges today are concerned about people going home after a day of sitting on a jury and going through social media to learn what it is they can about the case. And the messages in the social media may be so biased, you know, that have right. absolutely no relevance whatsoever to the evidence in the in the in the trial, that it really it really undermines what the criminal justice system is about. If it if it is ascertaining what the truth is given what the presentation of evidence is. So you're a prosecutor, and then you moved into, as part of that, into this environmental pro 
environmental prosecution that you were describing, which was more white collar, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, and now you're retired and you're doing photography. And tell my listeners what you're focusing on with your photography and how you got there, because that was the thing that just it staggers me how amazing your photography is and the storytelling that I see in the imagery and we'll point people and tell them they need to go look at Gale filter photography on Instagram because we don't have a visual here, but I'd love for you to, to tell people about your work there. Well, I mean, I've been doing it for five years. I've been working with the homeless five years. And again, I, um, as I got into it, I became more and more interested in the injustices that occur among the poverty-stricken folks in this country. And, and it's a much bigger number, I think, than most people realize. You know, in California, just to give you an example, 25% of all of the homeless in the United States live in California, 25%. 50% of all the homeless unsheltered in the United States live in California. So it's not unusual, at least in Sacramento and other large California cities, and, and this is true elsewhere in the United States as well, to see people sleeping on the streets in the doorways. And, and uh, here in Sacramento, along the, the American and Sacramento rivers, there's, there's what is known as tent cities. And, and we identify these homeless people as being a problem. And it seemed to me that, look, you know, the problem, how did it, how did it arise? You know, what, what caused this humongous problem to arise that today in California, it's been identified by the governor and the legislature as a crisis, okay? And when I, when I was working in Sacramento, there's a lot to be said that I've seen people walk around the homeless, ignore the homeless. It, it, they don't want anything to do with the homeless. And yet, the homeless are there as a result that we have ignored them. Don't forget, I mean, California, depending on whose stats you, you, you look at, is the sixth to seventh largest economy in the world, mm -hmm. in the world. And the question I have is, how did you ever get to this place to begin with, where most of the homeless issue, problem, is really done by nonprofit organizations. So when I started out and, and I became interested in this, it seemed to me one of the first things that needed to be done was through, through photography, which obviously I have a great interest in, is to, to show that the people that are homeless are really humans. They, like everyone else, have a degree of dignity. And my job as a photographer is to capture that dignity, to show that these are real human beings and to ignore them is shameful in my view. And, it, and, it, and this problem is growing, you know, because of COVID-19, what mm -hmm. have you, we're seeing more and more people go the homeless. So the photography, um, interestingly enough, you, you know, you said you saw my t-shirt that said good trouble. Um, John Lewis is it's a hero of mine, you know, I mean, civil rights, and I followed him, and, and I certainly agree probably on 90% of everything that he ever had to say. But it, it dawned on me when he was talking about good, good trouble, 
is that you, if you see something that's unfair, unjust, do something about it. Do, do trouble, do good trouble. And something clicked and I go, you know what? Photography could be the vehicle for doing good trouble, bringing attention to the injustice that exists among the homeless. And for example, you know, I'll give you one example of what I'm getting at. In California, there is in, in legislation, the right to water. And it's not just the right to drinking water, it's the right to water for other purposes, including sanitation. You can go along the rivers and you will never see any sanitation facilities that are offered to, to the homeless. On many Saturday mornings, I basically, especially in the summer, do little more than distribute water to homeless camps along the river. And it just seems to me, you can't really say that we're really trying to address the homeless crisis unless you're really going to deal with the problem and the components of that problem. And homelessness is not just this gigantic, monstrous problem. It's it's a lot of problems. It's, it's mental illness. Mm -hmm. You know, how do we get rid of mental illness? Well, we closed down the mental institutions <laughs> and now... You know, look what we're looking at. We didn't even talk about this, but I'm I'm actually a native Californian. I grew up Southern California, but lived most of my life from high school on in in the Bay Area until I moved to Georgia in 2004. And I worked in downtown San Francisco for a long, long time. And even after I moved to Georgia, I was back and forth pretty much every other week and would stay in a hotel in Union Square, which, as you know, is you know a, a very heavily populated area with homeless people and and I would walk to our office which was only four or five blocks away and I'm completely guilty full transparency of doing exactly what you said I would walk down the street and I would walk around and past and by homeless people sleeping in in doorways and you know cuddled on the side of the road and I would do this whether it was 90 degrees outside which is rare in san francisco or when it was 30 degrees outside which is much more common in san francisco or well probably not 30 but 50. and um my wife who you met came out to san francisco with me for the first time and uh we stayed in, a, in the same hotel in union square and there's a walgreens across the corner and she went over to walgreens and she filled a couple of bags she brought a bunch of clothes with her then she went over to walgreens and she just bought a bunch of things and she bought you know everything from bottles of water to um to sanitary napkins and things and toothbrushes and she picked these bags together and just walked around union square and gave them to men and women who she thought would need them and you could even see it was a microcosm to a certain degree of the homeless who kind of choose to be homeless. Um, I don't know that anybody really would choose it, but I'm, I'm struggling for a better way of phrasing it versus the ones who are mentally incapable and, and are forced by their mental illness to be on the street. Because you could just see people would look through the bag, throw away all the useful stuff and just take out one thing that just meant something to them. The rest of right. it didn't matter. And you look at that and go, that's not normal behavior from my prism of what normal behavior is. But for them, for whatever reason, because of the circumstance and the time that they're there. And from that point on, I started to be more sensitive than I ever was before. I stopped walking around people as much and would look at people or say something to people. Or if they asked for money, I would offer to give them food. And it changed my perspective dramatically. 
um, unfortunately, probably far too late in life or far later in life than I would have liked it to be. But I think when I see your photography, the thing that strikes me about it, beyond the technical, it's amazing to me because you do, it's beautiful, beautiful photography of difficult subjects, and but it humanizes the people. Well, thank you. You know, I mean, I, I'm not sure if I'm living in reality when I say I'm living in California. I mean, this is a... By any standard, this is a weird, weird place to live. And I'll give you one example. I mean, the big push in California today is to provide housing for the homeless. Okay? It's kind of like a good idea. Everybody should have a house. Yeah. The costs that are coming in for this are astronomical. They're like in Los Angeles and San Francisco, where you lived, it is they are suggesting to build an eight hundred square foot unit will cost somewhere between $800,000 and $1.2 million. And just to give you some perspective on this, the San Francisco Chronicle about four or five months ago said they're starting to build affordable housing. And I go, wow, that's cool. You know, and then I started reading, but it wasn't for homeless. It was for school teachers. Because the school teachers, the average salary in San Francisco of a school teacher is $80,000 a year, which I suspect is pretty high for the state of Georgia. Yeah. And they can't afford to live in San Francisco. So they're building affordable housing for teachers. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, I mean, where are we with this? Yeah. You know what I mean? How how can you address a problem that has become so gargantuan in in terms of expense that and your government doesn't seem to have an answer because the problem, no matter what the government does, seems to continue to grow. For example, we have these wildfires all through California. The stories about the people who are being displaced through the wildfires and becoming homeless. Is staggering. And some of these people back in Paradise, uh, you may recall the Paradise Fire from yeah. a couple of years ago, yeah. they became homeless and now they they were they they were living in areas along the Feather River where the fire the second fire is occurring, and now they're becoming, I don't know, homeless homeless. You know what I mean? They they've burned out from what they were in effect squatters so i mean and at the same time you're you're sitting there and you're you're sort of scratching your head for me anyway i you know i had lunch with a doctor friend of mine the other day and and he's he's basically supporting a book that i'm doing on on the homeless called silent prayers a photography book but he, he, his, his name's skip and he he's he's as old as i am he says, you know, I don't know, Gail, I just don't have that much. I, I don't know where I'm at today. COVID-19 just sort of did something to me. It's just, it's, the world is just not the same it was before COVID-19. And, and then he began to get angry and he goes, well, wait a minute. You know, he says, I don't get this. He says, you can't drink and drive, but you can refuse to get COVID-19 vaccination. And he says, 
whatever happened, you know, he's asking me as a prosecutor, he says, well, whatever happened to public safety? And I, I didn't have an answer. I mean, whatever did happen to public safety? Yeah. I, you know, so it, 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 those are the type of issues. And we get distracted and the story gets distorted because we don't have the capacity in the society to focus on anything and distill it down to the idea that we not only can spot a problem, but we can fix it. I think we are fairly adept at spotting an issue, although sometimes I really wonder. And then the question is, can you really fix it? Well, and then I think we have amazingly short attention spans because, you know, the, the, yeah. the idea that what, you know, so yes, it's been a long two years or year, you know, 19 months, whatever it's been now that we've been dealing with COVID-19. But the reality is there's a lot of people who just want to go, oh, that was that was last year's story. I'm done. I'm moving on with my life. You know, I've lived this long. I haven't had to have a vaccine. I'm just moving on. And it's, you know, just this week They're for lack of a better term, they're bored with the stories. They're just moving on from it. And, you know, <laughs> I live in the South where it's a complete hotbed of, you know, the county that I live in in Georgia has about a 47% vaccination rate, um, which is just insane to me because I just, you know, like I, I just, it boggles my mind that, that you would look at somebody and go, there is a deadly disease going around that you can catch virtually from anywhere that can kill you immediately. And you can go get a shot and keep yourself from getting it. And people are saying, yeah, I don't know. I'm not so sure I want to do that. It just, it staggers me. It's amazing. Um, and then, you know, to, to the point you were making about your friend, I, you know, we, we did this trip in July, we came out, my son got married, he lives in the Bay Area. My wife has family in Sacramento, which I mentioned. And so we, we did this trip and it's the first time that we've traveled since COVID. And so, you know, we flew out first time on planes since then, face masks, fine. I'm, I'm all on board with any mitigation measure we can take. And so when we were in downtown Sacramento, the day that we, that we saw you, um, and I haven't been in downtown Sacramento for probably five years, but I think it was a Monday morning, maybe. And I was stunned that there was nobody out. The, it, the streets were empty. I mean, there were, I'm sure the people that you're documenting were out. But, you know, we, we stayed at a hotel right down the street from where I met you at Old Soul, across the street from the Capitol. We didn't see anybody. And then we went the next day into San Francisco for our last day. And the streets were empty. I mean, I told somebody you could have driven a car down the sidewalk on Market Street at 12 in the afternoon on a Tuesday and not hit a pedestrian. And it used to be just a wall to wall zoo of people at that time of day. And the restaurants are all boarded up or closed down. We walked through Chinatown. There was no one there. And half the restaurants, if not more, were boarded up and shut down. It's just amazing to me what has happened the real impact of this. And I think that sometimes, you know, I live out north of Atlanta. We don't have quite the same dynamics. We're not as much of a tourist driven or business driven economy where, you know, the, I think a lot of the things in downtown San Francisco, maybe the same in Sacramento, this, the people are still there. They're just working from home or they're not coming to offices. So the businesses around them that support them aren't there. But going back to your point from before, how many of those people have become who, who work in these mom and chop, mom and pop restaurants and stores that will never come back potentially now become homeless as a result of this? And that just it just exacerbates the already bad situation. Yeah, I mean, and, and, it, and this gap 
this what I'm seeing today is absolutely scary. It's I'm seeing more and more seniors living on fixed incomes, okay, of Social Security. Let's say it's $1,300 a month or $1,400 a month that they're receiving. They can't afford rent. And so what's happening is many of the people here in Sacramento, the seniors, you know, who knows how this eviction thing is going to play out, but yeah. they, I'm seeing more and more seniors on the street, homeless seniors. I am seeing more and more homeless veterans on the street. And part of it, part of it absolutely is COVID-19, but bigger part of it is this economy and this growing gap that, that yeah. is undeniable, at least from my standpoint, that is displacing people on a daily basis to the point where they have no other choice but to become homeless. And I'll give you a quick example. There is this um, woman that I know that I see on the street regularly. Her name is Marie. And she got displaced in 2019. She got kicked out of her house because the, the it was torn down. So she ended up being homeless. She's 54 years old. And she recently, uh, maybe three or four months ago, got a job with Goodwill. They trained her. She works 40 hours a week. She's got health insurance, um, probably makes somewhere in the vicinity of $2,200 a month, but she's still homeless. So what we are seeing is this growing number of, and nobody is really addressing it. Nobody is really putting together the data. What is the number of the working homeless mm -hmm. that exists today in America that they're working and they cannot afford housing? And, and I think that number is growing. And I don't think government is putting together the numbers that, um, that I see, you know, I see reflected on the street. Yeah. And I don't know that people, I think it's, um, it's probably much more acute. It's probably everywhere, but it's much more acute in the coastal cities, right? It's San Francisco, Sacramento, right. Los Angeles, New York. Um, you know, my, my dad, when I was, I'll never forget when, when I first started to notice, you know, we didn't call them homeless people back when I was a kid, we called them bums, which right. was a, what a horrible thing to say. But you know, when I first started to notice that my, my dad would tell me all the time, he, you know, we were in Southern California and he'd say, well, he goes, if you're going to, if you're going to be homeless, if you're going to live on the street, would you rather do it in Toronto or would you rather do it in Los Angeles where the weather is, you know, 68 degrees all year round? makes perfect sense if you can find a way to get there. Um, but I think it was a very dismissive kind of a point, but I think there's these other factors in reality, now that I'm old enough to know the difference, you know, the, the difference being that just the economic disparity that you're describing between, you know, I, I, I worked in Silicon Valley forever. You know, there's obviously there's, there's haves and have nots in this, in the Bay area and in other places. And I would imagine Sacramento because Sacramento is an interesting place. You know, there's, there's kind of two Californias, right? There's the coastal California, which is pretty liberal and, 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 you know, San Diego, Los Angeles, up through San Francisco. And then there's the Valley, which tends to be a lot more conservative and Sacramento's kind of in the middle, right? It's sort of, it bridges those two, to a certain degree. It's agricultural, but it's also a reasonably big city. Now there's gotta be some tension within, within the community there over that, you know, just how people view the problem in that city in that area. 
Well, I think I think two things, you know, given what you said about Sacramento, let, let's not forget this is a Democratic controlled state. We have a Democratic governor, although, you know, that's subject to question given the recall election in the next week or two. Um, and we have a Democratic legislature, both in the Senate and the Assembly. And um, in Sacramento, I think the two things that one sees that is kind of interesting is first, and I don't know if this is true in other California or West Coast cities, is we're seeing a movement of where they're creating shelters, for example. And they had a master plan in the city of Sacramento that was announced last week or the week before. And, you know, just sort of close your eyes and think about this. So they're creating a tent city in Sacramento that is underneath one of the busiest freeways in all of Sacramento. So you, and it's a tent city, clearly. And so they're offering shelter to people there. And there is no, if you know anything about freeways, ask yourself or ask your, your listeners who think or listening to this, do you know anyone who lives under a freeway? Do you know anyone who has a business that they run under a freeway? And if you and if you don't, or if you do, which I suspect nobody knows anybody who lives under a freeway, why is that? And the reason is is because the pollution freeway pollution is mind-boggling. It's staggering. It, the Air Resources Board in the state of California says no one should live any closer than 1,000 feet to a freeway. So what's happening, I think, is under the pretext of shelter, we're basically hiding people. We're, we're sticking them on freeways and saying that this is, look, we're offering shelter under some sort of liberal, you know, posturing. And the question becomes, are we disclosing to those people that one, it is not safe to live under a freeway? Two, are you telling, are you looking at pre-existing conditions, health conditions before we locate them under there? And third, are you doing any monitoring to see whether it's really safe yeah. to be under there? And and the answer to each of those questions is no. Yeah, of course and, not. And of course not. And so, so I don't see where that's really progressive. You know, and then the other big thing of this master plan that was really interesting, given what we were talking about earlier, about the inequity that exists that exists between the rich and the poor is that a lot of the communities in Sacramento said, not in my backyard. So what happened is they created the master plan, but the master plan doesn't um, extend to all of the communities of Sacramento. So the ones that are rich aren't going to get any shelters or, you know, these communities of uh, many houses, for lack of a better description. And indeed, as I was looking at the master plan, is like one of these places is um, is is a, a brownfield, which means that the that the, the the ground that it's on has toxicity in it, harmful. So that has to be cleaned. But he, who do you know and say, hey, you know what? I really like this location. 
But once we clean the soil, I'm going to build a house there. You would have to think three or four times before you would say, I don't even know. If yeah, that's I mean, I'm, I'm just doing the mental math in my head about the <laughs> what is going to be the long term health care cost impact of all of this down the road for all these people are they going to be moved there. And it's probably going to be greater than it would be to actually locate them someplace different and put up shelter that is not exposing them to those kinds of things. I mean, it just, it's almost like, you know, we're going to solve a problem without actually thinking through what a real solution might be. And then, and then I'm also doing the mental math, even from where we first started the conversation to, you know, climate change, your environmental background, the things that climate change has caused, creating fires, displacing people. Those people are then forced to live in homeless camps under a freeway where they're exposed to this high, high pollution rate, and they're going to probably end up with much higher instances of cancer and other things down the road. And it's like a, just this vicious cycle. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, is you, we're not being told about this as to what the consequences of the policy is. It's sort of like instant gratification. We're doing something now, but we're really not looking down the road as to what, what this is going to occur, what's going to occur. And, and you're absolutely correct that the health care costs are, is already staggering for the homeless throughout the state of California. And what's going to happen is, you're, you know, we got into this discussion the other day, some friends of mine, it says, so you're going to create all of these shelters and what have you, and then basically what you're doing is you're creating another monstrous bureaucracy to deal with those issues. And by the way, those issues are not easy ones. It's, you know, yeah. in all honesty, in my experience, out of, out of the homeless population that I deal, have dealt with over the last five years, maybe 20, 25% have, have what's required to reenter society and, and work. You know, I mean, I, I don't know what people are thinking, but basically what you're doing is if you're putting people in a housing, isn't that something like a prison in terms of your warehousing or shelving, yeah. shelving people? And what is what happens once you're in there? What happens to you? And a lot of the homeless people say, we don't want anything to do with that. It sounds like jail. Yeah. I mean, it actually sounds a lot like the, you know, hasn't the entire movement been from a civil rights perspective to get away from projects because that's exactly what the projects were not for homeless people necessarily but for people we wanted to warehouse away from everybody else because under the under the premise of we're going to that's going to be low cost low income housing that they can afford right and 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 the, and the big thing you never hear stated and i haven't i'll be honest with you i haven't heard this is well, how do we reintegrate this seg reintegrate this segment of society into our community? And it's going to be extremely difficult if you don't even, for example, allow the shelters to be placed in your neighborhood. Right. Because if it, by saying it's not in my neighborhood, you're saying this is not my problem. Yeah, this is somebody else's problem, right? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think that one of the things I commented a while back on one of your your photos um, in your Good Trouble series, you had a photo of a guy who had been a released from prison, and I think I commented that you know we've we've in prison's an example of there really isn't any rehab that's done to prepare anybody to be re reintegrated back into society in a meaningful way, 
I think you commented back that, you know, with your background as a prosecutor, you absolutely knew that. And this is almost the same thing without the crime being committed. And it, it's crazy to think about it that way. But, you know, it, it doesn't the, the nuanced difference between those two approaches isn't very nuanced. No, I mean, it, it, we have this mentality, a, a, a significant segment of this society in California has this mentality that you can arrest away homelessness. That is the craziest thing I've ever heard of in my life. So in, in Los Angeles, what they did was they recently created an ordinance that says you cannot rest, sleep, stay, whatever, in these particular areas. If you violate, if you get cited for that, then you are subject to up to six months in jail or a thousand dollar fine. You, so let's take a classic example. You're, you've been up all night trying to stay awake so you don't get, you know, you don't become a victim of crime. You see a park bench, you, you crawl up on a park bench to sleep and you get cited because you have violated the, the, the city's ordinance. You go to, you, you, you appear in court, the judge says, okay, you know what? This is the third time this has happened. I'm going to send you to 30 days in jail and I'm going to, and, and I'm being lenient here and I'm only going to give you a $200 fine. Well, I mean, this is crazy. They don't have $200 right, to pay them. Right. And, and, and how much does it cost on the taxpayer to house that person, okay, for the 30 days or whatever it may be? That person is probably pretty pretty happy because he's in a better place in jail to some extent because he's got a cot, a place to sleep, and three hots a day. Right. So this is a, this is the craziness of we are not able to look at the entirety of where we are on a number of issues and able to address them and see the interconnectivity that exists with these problems. And if you really stop to think about it, I mean, it's in Georgia, whatever you're, you're, you know, wherever you go. I, I read the other day in the paper, 48 of the states have laws that are going to restrict voting rights. Right. 48 right. of the 50 states are going to restrict voting rights. Right. And you sit there and you go, holy cow, this seems like a humongous step backwards. It doesn't sound like. So the question becomes, if, if, if that's where we're at today, that voting voting rights, which should never have been an issue to begin with, but if voting rights are an issue, then what happens is it's diverting people's attention. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but it's diverting people's attention to these other massive problems right. that are being ignored by government. Right. And I, I don't I shouldn't say diversion. I, I just but we we're you know, think about it when you were a kid. It doesn't seem like we were just all the time preoccupied with elections. I can't open up my email today without getting a solicitation for one cause or another. And, and I sort of get it. But the point is, to run for a dog catcher in California is going to cost you a significant chunk of change. Yeah. So these elections have gone out of control. And it, the most important thing, in my view today, for many of the politicians, and this is one guy who worked in the legislative branch, the judicial branch, and the executive branch of state government is the, the the primary issue is staying elected. Is if I get elected, 
I got to stay elected. So it means that you're raising money. Yeah. And I can tell you right now, in my five years of working with the homeless, uh, photographing the homeless, not once, not once have I ever met a person, a homeless person who's made a campaign contribution. Not a single time. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and my guess is, there, if there are any, there aren't very many. Yeah, it's amazing. You think, um, you know, I've told people for a long time that, you know, on the national front, you know, congressional elections, you basically, they spend a year learning how to be a legislator, then they spend the next year campaigning to rewin the job that they spent a year learning how to do. I mean, yeah, it's, exactly. it's just a complete cycle where there's nothing getting done. And um, it, it's just, it's, it's always been wild. I mean, I had a guest on the podcast a couple of weeks ago who's a, uh, she's the CEO of a, of a roadside um, rest stop known Stuckies. You may have heard of them. It was a big brand roadside. And she's the the granddaughter of the founder and she's now the CEO. But she spent 14 years in the Georgia state legislature um, as a legislator here. And then her father was a U.S. congressman. And she actually grew up in Washington, D.C., even though he represented was a representative for a middle a, a district in middle Georgia. And you know, she in, almost cavalierly in the podcast mentioned that, you know, that they were back in Georgia a lot because her dad was always campaigning. Right. I mean, she just she said that and she threw it across. And I said, well, you know, it makes total sense to me. But I'm not sure how many people when they actually sit down and sit down at the ballot box or stand at the ballot box think I'm basically electing somebody to just have them start campaigning to me again tomorrow, because that's kind of what happens. Exactly. And, you know, I mean. And in Georgia, you know, the one thing that sticks in my mind about Georgia was this whole thing with the secretary of state, the governor, the legislature, what have you. And it should be, you know, it should become apparent to many people who are sort of following that. Hey, you know, a lot of government isn't in the legislation. It's in the it's in the bureaucracies. And they're powerful. I know because I, you know, I worked in a bureaucracy for a long time and. You know, some of the decisions I made would just be absolutely, you know, would amaze people that you made that decision that affects this number of people. And the answer is yes. Did yeah. you get legislative approval? The answer is no. Yeah. So those decisions are being made almost throughout the country on a daily basis. And you weren't an elected representative, right? You were an appointed or you were a, you know, you were a, a staff person. As I, you know, no one voted for you to go in to make those decisions. You were just empowered to make them. Through your job. I was appointed. You know, I was appointed in the state government. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, holy cow. I mean, you know, I went from being a prosecutor, all of a sudden I'm in state government. I got all these people signed to me. I had a heck of a lot of power. It just took me a while to to realize how much power, you know, a high-level bureaucrat has. And imagine what it might be. I mean, you're talking, what, a a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill. Yeah. Where's that money going to go? How's it going to be distributed? Who gets what, when, where, and how? I mean, those are really great questions. And I'm not sure if anybody knows what the, even the people who are in the legislature doesn't, don't know where it's going. Yeah, it's crazy. So, so you do all that. You're in this position of power. You retire. So the photography, was that, was photography always a hobby of yours? Something you were interested in that you, that you, did on the side back in the day, or was it something that you picked up as a result of this 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 um, 
emotional attachment you 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 gained to the homeless? I started out. Um, I was teaching at Junior Julia Junior College in Illinois, and from 1975 to 1985. And one of the perks of being a faculty member at the college was that you could take classes free. So I took a photography class. And of course, that was when there was film and dark rooms and chemicals and that sort of thing. And then um, and then I became a prosecutor and I realized the power of imagery. You know, I mean, if you really stop to think about it, you sat in a trial and probably the one thing you remember more than what any of the lawyers said was a particular graphic that said, whoa, you know, that that to me is compelling evidence. So I pulled all of those photography, you know, those imageries. And that's why I call it good trouble imagery, because if you really distill down and say, what is I always had this thing when I did trials. What is the last thing I want to say to the jury that is so compelling? And I usually would get down to the thing, ladies and gentlemen, we've been in trial for three weeks now. And let me tell you, if you really stop to think about it, it's one issue. Mm -hmm. It's just simply one issue. There could be credibility. I said, I want you to take a look at Exhibit 213. If there's any doubt in your mind about the credibility that this piece of evidence represents, I, I, there's no other way that you can you could not return a verdict of guilty. And that's what it's always about. Stop to think about what great storytelling is. It's mm-hmm. always distilling it down, especially given the attention span, uh, distilling it down to one or two things that sort of grip a person. You know, it says, whoa. And so that's what I try to do in photography. And, I, you know, I don't mind telling people I'm no great photographer, but the two things that I've always found in photography, especially um, photographing homeless people, are the eyes. It, 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 the eyes are so powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see the despair. You can see, I call them the eyes of, of silent prayers. You, you look in those eyes and you know they're asking for help. And the other thing is, is I do a lot of um, uh, 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 imagery relating to homeless people's hands. And if you've ever taken a close look, at homeless people's hands. Wow. I mean, those those photos tell stories on, yeah. on themselves. You know, they're filthy, they're dirty. That means there's no what. So what could I do more? You know, I can write. I was trained to write. But it seems to me that in today's society, if you don't have something that that is really powerful and compelling, you're not going to go very far with it in terms of storytelling. So how are you telling, so you're telling the stories, obviously I've seen and been exposed to the Instagram that you've got, but what, what else do you do with the images? You mentioned that you're working on a, on a book of the photography. Um, what, what other, what other avenues are you exploring or have you explored to actually get the imagery in front of people other than the random person you meet at a coffee shop in Sacramento, like me? Uh, actually, I, I've had, um, two exhibits this year and there'll be a third coming up. Um, at uh, a new gallery that's open, 11,000 square foot gallery that's going to be opening up in, um, in, in September. And right now, one of the things that I've, that I've been doing that really kind of interests me is about a, maybe two weeks ago, I started this, this series called the Riveter Series. And I'm sure 
most people know about Rosie the Riveter. And so I'm looking at, I go around, and I did, I've done this before. I, I, meet, I encounter a veteran on the street. I introduce myself, and I find out or discover that they're a veteran. And one of the things that I do is I give them an American flag bandana and thank them for our, their service to our country. So now I still do that, but I still I carry a load of bandanas with me, American flag bandanas. And now what I do is if I see a homeless woman or a homeless or a, a volunteer that serves homeless, a, a, a female volunteer that serves a homeless, I offer them a bandana. I show them a picture of Rosie the Riveter. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want you to be in this Riveter series. So I want you to give me your best Riveter look. The best one you got. And this is really kind of fun. This, this is like, and they know, they know who Rosie the Riveter is. You know, it says, is that the lady that, you know, with the arm up like that? Yeah. I says, yeah, 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 yeah. And she says, well, I like her. And, and so, you know, you get the, they start telling you the story because they want to do Rosie. And, and that's pretty cool. Yeah. And, you know, that's where I'm at right now. That's, you know, it's, 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 it's not a, it's not a thing for me of making money or any of that stuff. It's just simply doing what Lewis said is drawing attention to problem. And hopefully that allows people to see the problem in a way that is different, that is presented to them through the media. So when you, when you're approaching, just going onto it, like the, the, just the, the bare details of it, when you're approaching a homeless veteran or a homeless person on the street or one of these women, is there an initial reluctance or reticence on, on people's part to actually be photographed? Do they feel like they're being, that you're somehow taking advantage of them? Or is there more of a feeling of? I work two areas. I go to those areas. And so over the years, I've become known in those areas. But the biggest thing I have going for me that really helps, and a lot of your listeners are not going to be able to do this under any circumstances, is to be 75 years old. <laughs> because at 75 years old, you're no longer a threat. You understand? They look at you and go, hey, you know, the old guy doesn't seem. Yeah, he's not going to roll me. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And that helps a lot. It really does. It helps a lot. And, um, you know, to, once I get to know them, um, I, you know, what, what's really interesting, if you look at some of these things, is to watch. I have four or five people that I have followed over four to five years, okay? And like this one woman named Sylvia, I shoot her every year, who's homeless, probably in her 60s, Hispanic. She doesn't speak English very well. I don't speak Spanish very well, but somehow we were able to communicate. And over the last four years, I've managed to take a photo of her at Christmas time. And when you look at that sequence of photos over a period of four years, you just sit there and you can, you can see the aging process, the acceleration of the aging process. It's unlike anything you've ever seen. You just go, oh my goodness, this does this. What she looked like four years ago, what she looks like today is just absolutely incredible. And I've done that with a number of people. And it's sort of like, whoa, 
you know, it, it sort of gives you an insight as to exactly how rough of a life mm-hmm. it is living on the street. I mean, it is not easy. It's just no matter what anyone says, you know, they're bums, they don't do anything or whatever the case may be. I think I think the whole thing is about the struggle to survive. Yeah. It's a struggle to survive. I met, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you one quick story. I see this guy, interestingly enough, on a regular basis. His name is John. He's 77 years old. And he scraps. That is, he collects recyclables from garbage bins. But he usually scraps behind Old Soul where you had a cup of coffee. 77 years old. So I've gotten to know him. At first, he was really wary of me. Um, you know, what? what's the camera for? And then that's the other thing. I carry a very small camera, a little you know, Fuji X100V. And the reason is, is I don't want to intimidate anybody with a big lens or yeah. that stuff. Yeah. And so I'm talking to John and John says, well, I'm not homeless. And I says, whoa. He says, but I am scared to death. I will become homeless. I have to scrap to survive. And I'm sitting there, 77 year old American male wow. who has worked all his life. And he lives in fear that he's going to end up on the street. There is something the matter, fundamentally wrong, in my view, that so many people in our country have to face that that outcome or that possible, you know, that possible life altering impact. And it just seems to me that we are missing something along the way. Yeah, I can't think of a uh, scarier prospect. And I agree with you that it is staggering and it's probably a good place for us to and so just like you said in a in a good good court case where you want to end on something that people were going to remember i think that's a good one for people to remember um so quickly though before as a pivot and i didn't give you any warning on this i'm ending all the podcasts with a couple of questions just to give people some breadth and depth around the various personalities that they're meeting on the podcast so i've got some questions for you one is is there a recent movie or documentary or show that you've seen or binge watched that you would recommend to the listeners? Well, my favorite is Breaking Bad. That that that's number one on my list, and um, I, you know I've watched other things. Yeah, uh, I go to the old movies. I like the old movies. Okay. How about a uh, a book? or uh, an artist, a photographer, somebody that people may not have been exposed to other than yourself, because I think we'll, we'll give some nice um, exposure to you, but that, that you might tell people they should go look at that's doing something meaningful to you. Well, I mean, when I was teaching government, students used to cringe when I said part of your reading list is Robert Carroll's The Power Broker. And if you want to ever have any understanding about American politics and the power of bureaucracy, read The Power Broker, the story of Robert Moses of New York, person most people have never heard of, but had power that would match the Roosevelt's. Incredible story. Great. And Carol, of course, the guy that did all of the Lyndon Bay Johnson things, but The Power Broker is top drawer. And then I noticed on your Instagram, um, and I've seen a couple of other things around around you that you've you've taken part in. That there's a couple, at least one, charity that you've been involved with. Do you want to mention that to people if they want to get involved and find some way to to help out the people that you're working with? 
Yeah, I, I, I work with three, four organizations. One is Loaves and Fishes, which is um, an organization that is a shelter, um, survival shelter for the homeless in Sacramento. So um, that is a tremendous, and it's been around a long time. It serves all kinds of needs, you know, uh, medical care, provides lunches, uh, clothing, that sort of thing. I've worked work with Encounter Church out of Natomas. We actually been down to Mexico a couple of times uh, working with the homeless there, building homes for them. Um, the two main ones I'm spending most of my time with today are the Mercy Peddlers, which I sit on the board where we have a couple hundred people that ride tricycles throughout the, throughout the Sacramento area that provide um, a homeless with coffee. You know, the sister Libby who runs it says, you know, it's live in the present, live in the present, share a cup of coffee with a homeless person. And one of the so best I saw one of the tricycles with the coffee on it at the, the grove yeah. of trees behind the Capitol. When we were walking to old soul that morning, I had no idea what it was from. I just saw that there was somebody there who had an urn of coffee or a, or a, a cooler of coffee on the back of a tricycle and thought that's kind of cool. I didn't even realize what the, what the genesis of that was. So very yeah, cool. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is, you know, those people that go out regularly, they are able to, to roll up, so to speak, on the homeless and actually call people by their names because they do it regularly. And that's huge. You know, you mm -hmm. see somebody, Hey, Hey John, how you doing? Haven't seen you in a week or two. What's been going on? Gail, thank you so much for joining me today and for telling the story of these amazing people and continue the good work. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, Jeff. And remember, there's no vaccine for homelessness. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Narrative. Your feedback is always welcomed, as are your shares and, of course, your reviews. Please subscribe and review The Narrative on your podcast platform of choice, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.